You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It happened again last week. But in fairness, it happens all the time now. Demonstrators gathered around Singh as he left a campaign event. Some of them yelled obscenities and called Singh a traitor. If you are a politician that regularly meets voters in public, which is to say, basically, any politician, you're going to feel unsafe at some point. That is the ugly cost of doing business these days. The nastiness directed towards Canadian MPs has evolved from policy and party disputes to separate facts, personal attacks, and much worse. Even the Prime Minister, with the best political security in the country, has found himself in dangerous situations. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau was hit with a handful of gravel and a campaign stop in London, Ontario. Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau are party leaders, of course, extremely public figures, but even regular members of parliament now routinely report hate-filled incidents regularly. Catherine McKenna's campaign staff discovered this vulgar slur spray-painted on her campaign office window in Ottawa. This threat has been growing for years, and the pace has quickened lately. It has driven some longtime public servants to call it quits. And if it has done that, then it is likely preventing some would-be public servants from ever running for office in the first place. So how did our politics get so nasty? And what can we do about it before someone gets hurt? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Stephen Marr is an award-winning Canadian journalist, a novelist, a Harvard Neiman Fellow, and a contributing author to the Centre for International Governance Innovation. He wrote about this strain of nastiness and the walrus. Hi, Stephen. Good morning. Why don't you begin maybe by just telling me about Scott Sims to start with? Who is he and, and how did he end up walking away from Canadian politics? So Scott Sims is the former member of parliament for uh, an area of central Newfoundland. He's somebody who I got to know in Ottawa beginning around 2004 while I was in the press gallery and he was a, a new MP. He uh, is an affable and likable character with that quality that... Uh, in particular, a lot of Newfoundlanders have, in my experience, of hmm. not taking himself too seriously. Right. The former weatherman, an easygoing guy, likes to make you know jokes about it at his own expense, and was sort of a popular person on Parliament Hill with a reputation as being a constituency MP. So when there were policies of the Liberal government that he disagreed with, he would make a point of speaking out. And so uh, I was surprised on election night in 2021 when he lost his seat to uh, a conservative there. And uh, I gave him a call, mm -hmm. not, not to plan to do a story, just to, you know, here's somebody I've been uh, friendly with over the years. I thought I'd check in and see how he was doing. Right. And I was really surprised that uh, he told me, I'm glad that I lost. I, I'm, I've had enough of politics. It's getting too terrible. What was he talking about in particular? Was there anything that made his decision for him? Well, there was one particular incident he ultimately discussed, which was uh, being threatened 
while door knocking in a small fishing village uh, north of uh, Grand Falls. And this fellow, uh, a big guy, Scott's a, not a tall man, was yelling at him, threatening to throw him in a ditch because uh, the fellow said, well, you're going to bring in Muslim rule. And Sim said when he got back in the vehicle and talked to his campaign manager, he realized that he had become kind of deadened to this, that this sort of harsh personal attack by people who have been convinced of conspiracy theories has just gotten so common. Hmm. And he, uh, reasonably enough, doesn't want to have to put up with that kind of abuse anymore. Was it the conversation with Scott that started you down this road of trying to assess just how nasty our politics has gotten? Or was this something that was kind of brewing in your head already? Uh, I, I had been thinking about it already, but that when I talked to him, I started to think about it. And ultimately, I talked to uh, the Walrus and CG, and they said, it sounds like a story. And I called other MPs who I knew, and they said, Yes, no, no, you're exactly right. This is, Sims is right. Uh, this is getting to be tougher and tougher to be in this line of work. What kinds of stories did you hear from them? You know, how, maybe just a couple of examples. I know you talked to a whole bunch. So Charlie Angus, who's a new Democrat from uh, Timmins, Charlie's someone who I've known uh, over the years, and he's hardly a shrinking violet. He gets right. his elbows yes. up. He's a hot-headed punk rocker, a uh, bit of a parliamentary brawler, the sort of guy that, you know, is happy to go into the corners and try to dig up the puck and throw some elbows. And he was really rattled. When I called him, he, that, the very day that I called him, he was fresh from a hearing seeking a peace bond against a disturbed man who had repeatedly been making uh, threats in his constituency. During the uh, Ottawa convoy, Angus got, was sort of aggressively decrying the convoyers and Pat King. And the number of death threats that he got really rattled him. And another thing that, that he uh, found disturbing, I think, is that people who he had known for a long time in his riding had come to believe these conspiracies. You know, there was a, uh, a UN airplane uh, getting some work done at uh, the North Bay Airport. The, they had a maintenance contract with them. And uh, you'd have people saying, well, uh, why are you covering up the fact that they're flying in UN troops to suppress the convoy? And, you know, he, he, he was really struck by the fact that the same thing Sims told me, that people just would not listen to him when he said, no, no, that, that plane's just getting repaired. Don't be so, you know, there's no UN troops being flown in, and people just refused to, uh, to believe it, which is the same thing Sim said he was getting with people who believe conspiracies about a secret plan to impose Sharia law, law in Newfoundland or uh, World Economic Forum to force everyone to get vaccinated and enslave us all. Is that the key difference then? Because certainly, you know, and not to, not to minimize what any MPs are experiencing right now, and we can get into that, but certainly... You know, MPs door knocking and coming up against somebody who's vociferously against uh, their policies or their ideas or even just the party that they represent is not something new. And I know those things can sometimes get heated, but what you seem to be describing is like just living in two different worlds. Yeah. And what Sims, you know, these people are, this is what they do for a living go knock on doors and talk to people and represent their views. Right. So I believe them when they say that 
something has fundamentally changed. Now, Sims, he believes that it, that he noticed the difference first in 2019 and then getting worse in 2021. And he attributed it to uh, a change in Facebook's algorithm in uh, 2018 when Facebook changed the way that it shares content. They were having engagement problems, losing users. So they made changes to their algorithm that highlighted what they call meaningful social interactions, which is clicks, likes, and shares, and comments. And Facebook's engineers uh, warned the company executives at the time this could and would lead to greater discord. Mm-hmm. Because what the algorithm ends up sharing more often is material that makes people upset negative political material, things having to do with conspiracy theories. So it's basically like a bunch of cranky uncles is the, is the way you can kind of think about it. That, you know, the material that, that makes your uncle cranky <laughs> is the stuff that um, the algorithm ended up highlighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Sims theory. Uh, and there's, there's reason to give it credence. You know, there, there are people who say, well, it's possible to overstate that case. But... Uh, it seems like a strong argument to me. Before we talk about, you know, the possible causes behind this and, and what people who analyze this stuff think, after talking to those MPs, did you try to get a sense of, you know, the scale of this problem officially, either, you know, via things that are reported, I guess, how would they be reported to House of Commons security, uh, to the RCMP? Like, I'm trying to get a sense of, of how often this actually escalates to that level and if that's becoming more prevalent. Yes. Uh, now, the, uh, the uh, House of Commons, they won't confirm on the record how many incidents they deal with uh, in the course of a the year. They say that for security reasons, they don't want to do that. But their um, records show that they've increased security spending by millions of dollars. And off the record, an official with the House of Commons told me that it's quite alarming, the increase in, in incidents. At other levels of government, uh, we can see a dramatic increase. For instance, um, former Mayor Nahid Nenshi in Calgary. I think that in one year there were 65 incidents of threats that were serious enough that his office felt they uh, had to go to the police with them. Hmm. And then there's a, a lot of anecdotal evidence that fits the same pattern. When you ran the algorithm theory by communication specialists, what did they think of that? Because these things don't come from nowhere in order for Facebook to uh, ramp up engagement on a certain topic, that topic already has to be circulating to some degree, right? Yes. Well, and there's sort of two views. Uh, I spoke with Heidi Tork, uh, University of British Columbia, a professor who studies social media disinformation. And she sees a fairly clear link because the algorithms are, are you know, they're designed to keep you engaged. The algorithm doesn't care what kind of content it's, it's sharing. But there's people who are a little bit more skeptical. Fenwick McKelvey, a, a professor at Concordia University, points out that this increase in nastiness that we're seeing in politics happened at a time where you have the rise of Donald Trump, a pandemic that keep people isolated, and which leads to changes in, in their emotional state. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that you can say that social media is causing this, but it's certainly the mechanism by which this stuff is being spread. 
How much of this is also a case, uh, as it so often is, of of Canadian politics catching up to where American politics has already gone? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, we're seeing this in the United States. There's been several shootings. Uh, and in the UK, uh, there's been a couple murders, you know, knife attacks on politicians. Yeah. So it appears to be a, a global phenomenon. The research that I did in other countries suggested, you know, in Latin America and uh, continental Europe, there are, are similar patterns. In a sense, it may be that this is all kind of part of the pandemic. That's a troubling thought. The whole thing is troubling. I'm troubled by the fact that politics is becoming so dangerous and awful that people would be well advised to steer clear of it, particularly women and even more so women of color. A lot of the attacks are along gender and racial lines. Mm -hmm. And uh, although the research actually doesn't show that there's necessarily a larger volume of attacks on women and women of color, but the, the attacks have a different quality because they're more personal. People use gender and race as a way of attacking people, which makes it sort of more harmful harder to sort of shrug off because it's so closely linked to their identity. Hmm. And when I talk to people in, in politics, they say it's becoming difficult for the staffers who have to handle their social media accounts. That's a good place for me to ask you about uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, who, uh, first of all, is a conservative. So I think it's important that we we discuss her just because we've, we've used liberal and NDP um, examples so far. But also, m- most importantly, She's been dealing with this kind of stuff since long before I think most MPs were. You know, you talked to her about it. What has she seen over the past several years in terms of how this has evolved, I guess? Well, it's been very difficult for her. She's a high-profile spokeswoman for a party. She is a conservative, and, and, you know, she's strongly pro-oil and gas industry, for instance, and... uh, often uh, one of the most effective and um, challenging critics of the, the liberal government. But her conservative bona fides have not prevented her from being subject to these kinds of attacks. She uh, attended years ago one of the World Economic Forum events in Davos, and uh, the conspiracy theorists who have this you know, outlandish theory that the World Economic Forum is pulling strings behind the scenes to manipulate events around the world. Right. They've seized on her as a uh, you know a member of this non-existent conspiracy, and they look for opportunities to confront her in person. Uh, she's been told that there's a Telegram group, which is a encrypted app that these conspiracists use to, to try to find out to track her movements. There's a video online posted by one of these conspiracists showing uh, him interrupting Rumpel Garner while she was out having dinner with her husband. So it's become a, a quite a serious threat to her. You know, she's apprehensive about moving around her constituency, and she can't schedule public events because she knows she'll be confronted by troubled conspiracists. So let's talk practically then. What kind of security typically exists um, for MPs and I guess uh, for candidates too at this point since it happens during the election? And and is it changing to keep up with uh, the evolving nature of these threats? So the, the House of Commons is reluctant to talk in detail 
and the and the MPs who I spoke to don't also don't want to um, speak in detail. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, but uh, they have been provided with uh, sort of panic button apps, uh, I believe, on their phones. Some of the MPs who I spoke with have had to have police protection. They're not always satisfied with the kind of responses they get from officials. For instance, Catherine McKenna, former environment minister who was subject to just an enormous quantity of sexist, hateful attacks online. Yeah. She told me that at one point, an official with a role in protecting her, she didn't want to say exactly who, said, well, you're, you shouldn't be online. That's how you'll have to avoid this. So that it's not entirely clear that the people who should be seized with this have thought about it carefully enough. Because you can't be an effective politician now without being on the internet. That was the same answer, you know, that way back in, I don't know, what, 2012, 2013, that people were giving to women harassed uh, during Gamergate or whatever. And those were ordinary women. And now we're giving that advice to uh, our female politicians. Yeah. Not great. No. Uh, Angus uh, does not think that uh, the House of Commons is doing enough. He thought that they should have provided more support. His threatening situation was happening in his riding, which is hundreds of kilometers from Ottawa, and it's a jurisdictional matter for the local police. And, you know, his view is that the people with the expertise for handling this kind of thing ought to be playing a a bigger role in helping local police forces. Mm -hmm. You know, now the Commons does point to millions in, in new spending, and they are doing things, whether they're doing enough. Uh, I don't know. What about in the bigger picture? Are there any uh, potential pieces of legislation or uh, anything like that that could curb this? You know, we talked about the algorithm. Is there there social media legislation pending? Could we tighten harassment laws? Like, that's the kind of stuff that MPs can theoretically control to protect themselves, right? Uh, The Liberals had some legislation in the process that kind of got blocked by typical minority politics. That legislation has mostly not had good reviews from the experts. It seems to have, they seem to have taken a, the wrong approach. They've recently brought in a panel uh, of experts to advise them, including actually uh, Professor Torek, who I mentioned earlier. So there's reason to think that they may be going to try to do something. Uh, also, because of the um, governing arrangement, the supplier agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, there's this, the prospect of uh, more progress at the legislative level than there was in the in the last parliament. My last question is about how much of this comes down to an awful but kind of logical extension of the kind of partisan attacks we already see coming from these MPs and politicians. You know, I'm thinking, looking around the conservative leadership race right now, uh, which is full of these kind of attacks. And I believe, in fact, Pierre Polyev had to answer questions about uh, his previous visit to Davos um, in light of one of these conspiracy theories. So, you know, how much of this are MPs contributing to with their own partisanship? It's interesting. Uh, I think, by the way, that uh, Pierre Polliver says that he has not been to Davos, and he, the, and the fact that he would say that and go to the, the trouble of pointing that out, it shows that um, when he's confronted by people who believe his conspiracy theories, he doesn't say, that's nonsense, your theory is ridiculous. 
he says, I'm not part of it. Right. If you read between the lines. So I, I, I'm disturbed by that, frankly, that there's a number of conspiracy theories that RMPs could do more to talk down. But I've been covering politics for a long time, and there's a, a quote from H.L. Mencken I often think about, which is, um, uh, if a politician discovers that he has cannibals in his constituency, he'll offer them missionaries for dinner. Hmm. To a large extent, politicians, we think of them as sort of independent actors who uh, are making arguments to the public. But to a large extent, they are sort of creatures of their supporters. Uh, if they want to get elected, they will reflect what they think will help them do that. Uh, so in a sense, they're kind of powerless, in my view. They can make personal choices. So it's not to say that they don't have agency, but systemically, they are going to behave in the way that they think will help them connect with their supporters and get reelected. So I don't think that we are going to see a shift in leadership from them. It may be that this is getting so nasty that some of them will say, well, let's dial this down a little bit. But I don't think that the change is going to come from their behavior. I hope that the end of the pandemic, uh, that as we move out of this, God willing, we'll, uh, we'll see when people are less isolated, these conspiracy theories start to have less traction. I hope that, that we're sort of organically move away from this stuff. But we're so influenced by the United States now, by the cultural dynamic there, and it just seems to be getting more intense and worse there. So we ended up at a place after this conversation where politics is getting nastier because Canada is getting nastier. Canada is getting nastier because the states and the world are getting nastier. It all feels um, like a force beyond our control, really. I think that's right. I think this is the spirit of, of the age, and it's... Uh, and I believe that it does have a lot to do with uh, social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, I used to live as a young man. I, I uh, lived in the in the area where Scott Sims uh, represented, working for the local paper, the Grand Falls Advertiser. And when I lived there, that was the sort of central media institution of that community. And it was a you know a pretty good little community paper, place where people would learn about what was happening in their community. It closed in 2018, and now all of the people who used to share a common institution now all ha are in echo chambers of their own uh, algorithmic uh, construction. And I think that, that those, those information silos yeah. have put us in a, in a very different place. Stephen, thanks so much for this. I wish we had a happier note to end on. Me too. Thanks for uh, the discussion. Stephen Marr, writing in The Walrus. That was The Big Story. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us and leave us a voicemail, ask us a question, suggest a topic. Just say thanks or no thanks. The number is 416-935-5935. 416-935-5935. I do want someone to set this to a commercial jingle someday. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.